technical difficulties. <laughs> All right. Leave it to the computer guys to uh, to kind of mess up their Zoom and microphone integrations. <laughs> His keyboard isn't being recognized. It's rebooting. Perfect timing. Yeah, for some reason the, the keyboard doesn't isn't connected. Rebooted the you know additional chunk of hardware I need just to get the computer to be a computer. That didn't work. <laughs> Rebooted the computer, did nothing. It turned on for a moment, and then I was like, ah, I'm not into this. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn off now. You have power. You're back. I have power. So dead cable, you know, add, adding to the wow excitement of the moment. Okay, we're ready. Is that Murphy's law: whatever can go wrong will go wrong. Yeah. What more could Elixir possibly need? Wait, is this the right one? Is this the right one? <laughs> oh, I did not rename that part of the title. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait a second. I looked at the wrong thing. I didn't. Take two. All Take right. two. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Welcome back to Beam Radio. I'm Stephen Nunez, and today we'll be talking about living with Elixir. Before we get started, I want to introduce our panel. We have Lars Vickman. Hello. We've got Bruce Tate. Hi, from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Before we get started, we want to uh, find out what's going on over at Groxio. Bruce, while I have you on the floor. Yeah, so it's a lot of fun right now. So we are starting to get into the Axon framework, which is kind of a machine learning framework for Elixir. So the idea is that you have this generic function and you train it based on data to do whatever you want to. So this might fire when it recognizes some type of an image or tell the difference between um, cats and dogs or anything like that. So the, the machine learning framework is a way to work partially in a functional environment where, where you're basically composing a machine learning system through layers. So it's a lot of fun and I hope you guys will join us. That sounds really cool. Um, so today our host will be Lars. Lars, why don't you take it away? Yeah, thank you. So I wanted the topic today to be living with Elixir. And to speak to that, I found the perfect person to talk to, someone who got on the train early and has been living with it in public ever since. So it's my pleasure to introduce Jared Santo of the Changelog podcast and changelog.com. So welcome, Jared. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. So just to give some background, uh, the Changelog podcast is currently at episode 461, and other podcasts produced under the same domain uh, include GoTime, JS Party, Practical AI, Founders Talk, and most recently Ship It, and a few others that have gone into retirement. I really like Request for Commit. Mm. And so the Changelog runs on a bespoke, custom, tailored CMS. Uh, that is specifically for your podcasting needs. And it's built in Elixir with Phoenix, and you have been building it in public as open source. And from the commit log, I can see that it started in late 2015. So that's a long running Phoenix project, as the framework itself was, according to commit logs again, started in January 2014. Uh, and you had Chris McCord on the podcast. Uh, back in April 2015, and since then have had both him and Jose on repeat visits. So yeah, welcome. 
Thanks for having me. It, I feel old now as you continue to <laughs> tell me how long I've been living with this application, but happy to talk about it with you all. Great. So we actually have a process mailbox that uh, sort of lines up nicely with this. So if you want to send us a message in the process mailbox, you can reach us on Beam Radio one on Twitter uh, and just hashtag it with process mailbox. And this one is from Andy. Can you talk a bit about the Elixir community? What does it mean to you? How did you get involved? How do you approach it today? And what advice do you have for people looking to get involved? So maybe we, we do this in order of when people started with Elixir. Did Bruce or Jared start first? I wonder. Ooh, that's going to be close. What do you think, Jared? I think you should go first. <laughs> I think it's probably right. I think that that was um, one of the first Elixir deployments. We, um, I hired Eric Meadows Johnson, and um, you know, he was right out of university, and and so we we spent a good amount of time together, um, dreaming about um, about database connections, and um, as he was starting to solve some of the dependency resolution problems in Hex. Um, but I would have I have three bits of advice for people who who want to get involved with the Elixir community. The first one is to be kind. It's more important than ever before for positive voices to be heard so that people really feel the, the, the gratitude for the contributions that they make because that's what fuels innovation. It's So I believe that open source software is fueled by, by the idea that your stuff is getting used and appreciated. The second bit of advice that I have is to come with an attitude of service rather than an attitude of, I want to be served. And that means that, that you should get involved pretty early. And when you see things that you don't like, pitch in and make them better. And initially that might start with writing tests or writing documentation, but there are plenty of opportunities to get involved. And if you, if you join in some of the some of the communication channels, you can ask, hey, who needs help right now? And um, this is the type of thing that I can do where I can buy services be useful. And the third bit of advice is to, is to pitch in, right? So there, there's plenty of work to do. And it's really a rewarding and rich experience to, to actually get involved in this way. And what does Elixir mean to me? Well, it's been the way that, that I've made a living for about 10 years right now. And I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude, not just to, to Jose and, and you know, Chris McCord, who built the, the Phoenix library and, and the live view that's kind of built on top of that. Those, those are two things that I teach at, at Groxio right now, but also to, to the people that built the frameworks and products that Elixir is built on top of to um, the late and great Joe Armstrong, to Robert Verding and the rest of the OTP team. So what the Elixir community means to me, it's, it's a way that I support my family. It's a way of life. And it is a wonderful, beautiful, supportive community. I'll just add my amen to that. And most of my touch points with the Elixir community are by way of podcasting. As you said, Lars, I came into this community because I had Chris on our podcast and that was my introduction and a lot of my touch points with elixirists are on podcasts and one of the things i love about this medium as bruce alluded to 
is there's humanity and voice and there's it's a platform i think for kindness and for being real with each other whereas text can be abstracted away and we struggle to i think communicate with kindness and with humanity and with empathy via text sometimes i think voice communications are powerful for that reason now over the years i've been asked dozens of times to start an elixir podcast and one of the things i love about the elixir community is I feel like it's really well served with podcasts and there's always, there's a half a dozen good shows that you can turn to. I didn't really feel like there was much of a need. Now we've moved into the Go community. We've moved into the JavaScript community and try to provide some voices to those communities, but I've always appreciated how many Elixir podcasts are out there and how high quality they are. So kudos to y'all for that and to others as well. And that's my, that's all I'll add for the segment. Yeah, so Steve, you definitely got in earlier than I did. So go ahead. Yeah, I think my, my first commit was what, 2013? But deployment, I think you got a first. Oh, you should have went before, before me. Man. You should have went before me. <laughs> well, I, I guess like, you know, committing and messing around is different than like, you know, getting something out there. So I, um, yeah, I mean, like, so when when the world was, was open and, and uh, you know, we were having like in-person meetups, I helped host a bunch of the New York City um elixir meetups and the community was just incredible i mean it's it's so interesting to see uh something pop up out of nothing really like it spun up pretty fast people were like hey i do elixir you do elixir let's chat let's kind of hang out and talk about these really interesting problems that people were solving already um where you get a bunch of smart people in a room together and they they you know become an incredibly helpful and um kind force um, I boot the New York community is, is electric community is really, really great. So shout out to them. Um, I think a way of getting involved. One thing that I did early on was there's value in sort of asking to understand other people's problems better, even if you don't understand them fully. Um, I know I spent a lot of time in the Elixir Slack it, when I was learning Phoenix and people would ask questions about Phoenix that I could not answer, but I would sort of ask for more clarification, almost like um, the idea of being greedy but not entitled is a big part of like my philosophy on learning is if, if you're asking for help, I can sort of also piggyback off of you asking for help by asking you to help someone else. So I would ask a, a ton of questions about, well, what does this mean? How does this work? What, how's this different from X, Y, and Z if you're familiar with X, Y, and Z? And everyone was great. You know, people were really responsive and uh, it spawned up really a bunch of great conversation. So to get involved, join the Slack, I guess would be a good one. Uh, ask a ton of questions um, and just try to be helpful where you can. Um, you know, if you say something wrong, we'll, uh, you know, it'll, it'll fix itself. I'd like to piggyback on top of that. When you ask these questions, it's great if you ask these questions in a place that can be searched and indexed and leveraged so that more people can, can have the benefit of your stumbling and discovery process. Uh, I think that's really important. Mm. Be dumb in public. That's what I tell people. Be dumb in public. Just ask the belligerently ridiculous question in public because it'll help someone else. Yes. Elixirforum.com, I believe is that the, the domain I land on all the time from Google. And I'm always happy to land there versus Stack Overflow because the quality of responses on there are quite high in relation. Yeah. Yeah. The forum is, is special in that. 
manner. It's interesting that the Elixir community sort of shifted away from Stack Overflow and into its own forum mm. uh, overall. It's like, I, I still find Stack Overflow answers around Elixir, but they're usually yeah. from like 2014 and often still fairly accurate, which is good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I got in through the Nerves project and I think that or partially through the nurse project. So I, I watched a bunch of Elixir talks, got excited, and then I tried to do some stuff and ended up playing around with nerves and some hardware. And I think the big lesson to take there is there are niches within this niche. There are uh, corners of the community that you can start in that are maybe not as big as just going into the Phoenix channel and expecting to make friends because it might be a bit of a high traffic zone. And if you want to get in touch with the community and involved with the community, building relationships with people is what matters. Uh, and one way to do that is to be clear that you're building something and share, share your discoveries, share your troubles. Uh, don't expect too much help, but be thankful for the help that you get. And people are generally very helpful. Nerves people are have been ridiculously helpful to me, and yeah, uh, I think try to build some stuff. Some of it will sort of land and have traction and all of that good stuff, and some of it will just never be heard of again. And that's fine. <laughs> that that happens. That's building in public. Mm -hmm. all right, I think we answered that. And if you send more questions to the process mailbox, and we pick your question, you get a shirt. And I saw my first mailbox shirt over a zoom call today just a random conversation with an elixirist that turned out he had sent uh sent a question had That's it answered cool. and had the shirt they're good shirts they are comfortable um i i maggie sources them i don't know where she gets them from but it's my favorite t-shirt in the in the drawer yeah they're good all right so to just give some backdrop for people listening. Uh, Jared, could you tell us a little bit about your background before you started building podcast empires on top of Elixir? Sure. So it was the winter of 1982. No, just kidding. How far back would you like me to go? Just web dev things or you know, university? Yeah, I think. What are you looking for? Uh, so what did you do essentially before ChangeLog? We want your elixir journey. My elixir journey. <laughs> we want to feel the pain. We want to feel your pain <laughs> as you are feeling it. And we want okay. to we want the satisfaction of your relief as you are feeling it. Okay. So it's assuming a bit. <laughs> it is, but I'll do my best to fulfill that desire. So I began in web dev back around Ruby on Rails. I'm a longtime Rubyist. I still sling Ruby on a regular basis, especially when I'm just trying to script something quickly to get it done. I find lots of joy with that programming language, but much like I came to Elixir by way of Phoenix, I came to Ruby by way of Rails. So like many people, I've, I was wowed by build a blog in 15 minutes back in 2004, 2005, whatever that time frame was. And I thought, I want to be able to build a blog in 15 minutes. I never actually was able to get that done, but you know, still faster than what I was doing was PHP and WordPress prior. So build web apps with Ruby on Rails for about a decade. Um, a lot of it was consulting or dev for hire things. 
many small businesses, many startups, a lot of greenfield. I did some rescue projects as well, which I found a lot of joy in, but I found there's a whole lot of Ruby on Rails of rescue projects. And I thought maybe that was systemic or something. And during that time, I started getting involved with a changelog. I did not start a changelog. My business partner, Adam, Adam Stokowiak, and when Netherlands started it back in 2009, around the dawn of GitHub, they were really excited by open source and GitHub and tracking what's new, fresh and new and open source. And that's where the changelog began. I was a avid listener and I really appreciated the blog because one of the things I say is my greatest skill as a developer is my fear of irrelevancy because I'm always keeping up. I'm, af I'm afraid I'm gonna be irrelevant soon. Not so much now as much as I did back in the day. So I appreciated them always tracking new projects, new things, what's interesting, what's not. And then in 2012, 2013, it started to fade out. Long story short, I got involved. My relationship with the changelog grew over time before I started co-hosting the show. And um, around 2015 was when we decided to build our own platform. And that brought me to Elixir. So that's a little bit of my background. I can tell you the my conversion story. I'm not sure if it's going to be quite as satisfying as Bruce wants it to be, but I can conversion try to go for story. It anyway. The we'll title is already immensely satisfying. <laughs> so one of the things that happens when you host a weekly show about software is you get a lot of FOMO. You get a lot of excitement, you know, because you everything is new and shiny and interesting and you spend an hour with each person or so and they convince you how amazing this thing is they're working on and that's all well and good but it's not like you can just hop on all those trains you know it'd be foolish maybe impossible to hop on all those trains but one of the things that kept happening recurringly is right after the show adam and i would chat and i'd be like this is so cool man i'm gonna go try this right now i'm gonna go and then I check my email and there'd be like a bug over here. My, my client would be having things. I forget about it and move on. So that's kind of like a joke, an ongoing joke of ours is like, I'm always like, let's try this, but I never actually try things. Well, that all changed with Phoenix after we had Chris McCord on Lars, you talked about that episode back in 2015. And Chris was incredibly compelling. Uh, his story resonated with me. The WhatsApp story resonated with me and I had already given Erlang a try a couple years previous and really appreciate a lot of Erlang's reliability and underpinnings and what they've accomplished with the phone systems and all that. I just didn't really dig the syntax. I had a hard time grokking it. I'm not that smart. And I grew up in like Perl, Ruby, PHP land. And so it was so foreign to me that I had a false start with Erlang. Interesting, but kind of moved on. After talking with Chris that day, I did the same thing I always do. And I said, this is so cool, Adam. I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to go play with it right now. And it just so happened that I had an actual need that I thought, and here's a great playground. Sometimes you actually need something that's like small scoped, but interesting. You can maybe spike it out in a few hours to really give something a go. Otherwise, you're just kind of like following tutorials and is not that satisfaction. So I had a project like that and it was a simple API. This was back when we were on WordPress using Memberful. 
And what we wanted to do was we invited everybody who joined Memberful into our changelog Slack. And Slack didn't have official APIs for this back then. I think they most, I think they actually do now. For years, you had to like hit some admin API to send somebody an invite to your Slack instance. And so what I needed was some sort of a web app that would just sit there and wait for webhooks from Memberful and then fire off a Slack invite. And I thought that sounds like a pretty good scope to try out Phoenix. And so that was my playground. I gave it a shot. And wouldn't you know, I coded the thing up in like hour and a half. And that was really satisfying to have a quick win. Uh, in fact, it's still out there today. You can find it on our, on our GitHub. It was called Ola, like hello, because it's like inviting you in. I like, I like corny names. So it's out there. It's called Ola. I bet it still runs. I mean, it's, it's like a very small little Phoenix app. And it just does that one thing, and it did it pretty well. And that got me to actually say, okay, I'm going to give this thing more attention than most things that pass by our radar. Co that coincided with this desire to rewrite our platform. We were on WordPress. We had one show. We wanted to go multi-show. So not, as you mentioned, we have GoTime, JSParty, so on and so forth. WordPress was fine. It suited our needs for many years. At a certain point, you start bumping up against it. And when we wanted to go multi-show on a single domain, that's kind of where we started hitting problems. And so it's like, hey, I'm a web developer. I found a shiny new thing. Let's give this thing a try and see if we can build our own platform with Elixir and Phoenix. Now, I wasn't as productive on that build as I was on that little Ola app. So it took some more, you know, traditional banging your head up against the computer, reading books such as Programming Phoenix. Is that the one? I definitely read Chris and Bruce's and Jose's book, which helped me get over a couple of humps, just mentally understanding the way things worked. And I guess the rest is history. Yeah, so you said a couple of things that I think are really interesting there. The first one is that to get started, you found the right scope, right? So one of the things that we tried to do in seven languages in seven weeks that made it resonate with people is that we got people far enough along where we were building something non-trivial, right? And so then you can you can see the a language in the context of the thing that it does well. And I think that that's just really tremendously helpful. Mm -hmm. And the second thing that you said that was interesting that really resonated with me was that when Phoenix was new, when Elixir was new, it was very difficult for programmers and for the people who were building the framework. Um, as as, as the, the Phoenix team was working through the scaffolding, it was super important for people to think about how things would be built. But it was essentially done with a blank slate. And so I think that one of the things that was missing, not just in the Elixir community, but in any functional community, we missed the, the design type of advice. And when we Ruby on Rails developers, of course I came from the same place that you did. When, when we kind of found these patterns, we, we tried to shoehorn <laughs> the active record and, and the, uh -huh. um, you know, the model view controller kind of ideas into it and say, where does our helpers go? Well, there's none. So we'll, we'll make one. And, and you know, 
found out later that all we need was need was functions or how do we separate right the, the the pure from the impure or even is that an important thing to do turns out it's a really important thing to do and um it's hard to kind of grok those concepts coming from a object-oriented world yeah so i your, your story really resonates with me yeah, there were a couple of things about Phoenix. So this is Phoenix 0.10, I believe. I just looked it up when that show went out. It wasn't like I just started coding you know, our platform immediately after the episode shipped. There's some time lapse in there. But the quick win was important to me and really like gave me that satisfaction. Obviously, when you come from Rails, you're used to you know, out-of-the-box 800 milliseconds. In, in development, 800 millisecond response times, maybe 500 depending on how many database calls, just the microsecond response times that were coming out of Phoenix was like, that's a that's a carrot on a stick, right? I'm like, ooh, I want that. Uh, the other thing, especially back then, I think it's gotten a little bit longer, but still easy to grok. The stack traces, Phoenix's stack traces are incredibly short. And it's like, oh, I can see the nine functions that are called to get this done. Just made up the number nine, but it was really short. So I could feel like I could understand more of the system and then the concept of plug and pipelines and the request response lifecycle just really mapped to my brain the way I think about a web map. And so plug was even in its infancy, it made a lot of sense. And so these are all kind of virtues that this ecosystem uh, that spoke to me. It's pretty interesting that that the the plugs when we first wrote the book, we had all of these these glorious diagrams that kind of. Um, were, were layers and layers and and then we kind of we ripped those out and we we had a new construct that we kind of folded into the um to the pragmatic tool stack called pipeline <laughs> right the pipelines were more descriptive of what was happening in the framework than our diagrams were the code was mm. more descriptive than the pictures of the code which has had never happened to me in the history of writing all right so how do you feel about the choice? Like, what is it, half a decade later? Yeah. A little bit more even? I would say I don't have any regrets. It's pretty mature at this point, our application. And, you know, the first N months to get it out there was a lot of work and a lot of relearning. I didn't understand pattern matching. I didn't understand pipelines at first. That didn't take as long as pattern matching. And the Elixir has that familiar syntax to Rubyus, but then there's also like so much that's different once you dig into it. So there's a lot to learn, probably more than I thought, because it kind of has that nice uh, lipstick on it that's attractive. And then you're like, oh, this there's this this person's more than just a face level, right? There's there's depth here, which took took a while. But once we got up into production, you know, our application is relatively simple. It's, it's, it's CRUD, it has admin, it has public things. There's specific aspects of it that, you know, are somewhat more interesting, but there's not too much special to that. And that being said, once we're up in production and maintaining and just moving along, I mean, we've been developing at the speed that we wanted to in most cases ever since. So no regrets, that's for sure. I noticed you use turbo links. How do you feel about that today? I feel great about that choice. I wrote that blog post uh, back when we first launched and it served us very well. It's allowed us to have a feature that we really desired, which is a, per, a permanent player 
that continues to play our episodes as you navigate the website without any sort of heavy front end framework. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I've written uh, some about some of the turbo stuff and the hot wire stuff that's happening in the Rails community. I think there's a ton that we can learn and pick up from there. So I was uh, I remember reading that blog post and being very excited to see, uh, you know, that a tool that I think is really good can be kind of plucked out and used to enhance Phoenix. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, not too many people were doing that because Turbo Links had this stigma initially amongst Ruby on Rails developers because the the initial versions of Turbo Links were very crufty and treacherous. And so it'd be kind of the things wouldn't work in your Rails app and it'd be the first thing you turned off and everything magically worked, right? Because now you're doing full refreshes immediately. And so people would just start to reflexively turn Turbo Links off. And I had some of that when I was doing Rails, but I also kind of recognized the concept was really neat. And I saw GitHub was doing it successfully with PJAX for many years. And I'm like, GitHub is a very impressive traditional web application. It's changed much since then with the advent of new technologies. But I thought PJAX had good ideas. Turbo Links was crufty. But then when they released the non-Rails in generic version, I thought if I could plug that into Phoenix and immediately get my SPA features, such as a perma permanent player, as well as faster page load times, then to me, that sounds golden. And it's served us very well. We still use it to this day. Yeah, and the, the modern sort of fashionable thing would be to pick up live view. But of course, if it's not broken, why fix it? Yeah, I would love to use live view for something. I'm just waiting for something. I had one thing. I, I did some live coding of a scratch sheet, which is like a you know Google Docs-like uh, situation for our show recordings. And I got that kind of going because during a show you have, you might have, might have one right now, a collaborative doc where everybody's, you know, live editing the same doc. It's, it's, it's a scratch sheet. It's kind of useless at the end of the recording, but we do so many recordings every week that if we could just have that in the system, it'd be really neat. And now people, some people use Google docs, some people use HackMD, blah, blah, blah. It's kind of a mess. And I thought if we could bring that inside of our admin, it would be really cool. And it seems like a perfect use for live view. And I started wiring it up and it was just back then, probably two years ago, live view gave us the real time, but like the actual collaborative text editing is a lot more work than just that. And so I just, I fall started. I haven't used live view for anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's about accurate. The, the collaborative part is a bit challenging. There are good primitives for it now. Two years ago, I think you would have to have rolled your own, essentially. I'm curious, have you gone sort of deeper into the underlying tech of Elixir, sort of the Beam and Erlang and OTP? Because I know a lot of people following Elixir and Phoenix are like, oh, but I don't know Erlang, I don't know OTP. And I don't feel like that's necessary to do what you're essentially doing with typically Rails, like building web, mm -hmm. web applications. Typically, I don't think you need to dive that far. How far have you gone? I'm right on the surface, baby, just riding the waves. I don't know OTP. In fact, I was on Full Stack Radio with Adam Wathen. He asked me to describe OTP to him, and I started, and I'm like, I'm going to stop because I just don't even know what it is. And I'm not ashamed of that. I feel like that is it speaks well to the abstraction layers that are built into these this ecosystem. I could describe it. I mean, Bruce could probably write a book about it, probably has, but I could tell you guys what it is, but I've never had to think about it. 
uh erlang you know there's some times where you call into like erlang libraries like crypto stuff etc that's about as much erlang as i've had to think about and, and so I think they should put that on the box of phoenix just like uh you don't have to know tp you don't have to know erlang but it's there uh, if you need it which is really cool right yeah and i think that one of the things that's that's pretty cool is that you can see the evolution of what's happening in in Phoenix with the the books programming Phoenix and programming Phoenix Live View, which which we're working on now. Um, programming Phoenix Live View, you have to know less about OTP than you did when you were coding when we wrote programming Phoenix with channels. Mm. The interesting thing about that is the abstractions in Live View and in OTP are very much the same and. If there are people that need to pick those concepts up, then you can take a class and you could spend um, two, two and a half days, like with our, our Groxio classes and pick it right up. And really our most popular class is the OTP one, even amongst Phoenix developers. But both of them are going to use the same types of reducer techniques. You know, the, the thing that we call CRC, you, you build something, it's prepared to work, do your work, and show your work. And you do that over and over and over. It's pretty cool. So have there been things that have been specifically challenging over time with running Elixir? I would say initially with Phoenix specifically, getting up and running with a bifurcated admin and public front end was challenging. Uh, it's I have a bespoke Webpack config, let's just say that. And back then, uh, it was all about brunch. So brunch was like the standard Phoenix thing. And I felt like that desire, Phoenix's desire to stay kind of decoupled from that makes sense. And like, well, some things are just APIs. You don't even need it. Fine. But most web apps need that. And the brunch integration was very minimal. Uh, the, switching to Webpack, which I did before Phoenix officially did. So I just threw brunch out and did Webpack because I needed more power in that part of the application that was just a lot of like figuring stuff out and work and like should i do this should i go away from the norms because i'm very much a convention over configuration person coming from rails like do it the rails way until you don't have to and so that was like a decision to be made i know that we're switching over to es build at this point i'm very excited about that i want to give it a shot my guess is it's a little too complicated of a setup for es build but we're going to find out um but that's not really Elixir, is it? We're talking about JavaScript land. We're talking about well, assets. <laughs> we, we just love it when the most challenging part of Phoenix is the JavaScript end. There have been a couple of libraries lacking that have slowed us down where I do not have the expertise to develop a library myself or the time. And the community hasn't provided that specific library. So that's a thing. I think that's less and less of a thing. Um, but one in, in particular is when you comes to MP3s, we write out our ID3 tags automatically based on the admin data. And there's just not an ID3 v2 library in Elixir land that either reads or writes ID3 v2. I started to write one, but it was not high enough priority, you know, for me to get that done. And I honestly, my skills weren't up to snuff to do that. And that slowed us down in certain features that we would have otherwise, such as chapters built into our podcasts. That's one thing. Uh, a couple of libraries that started off really strong 
fell into somewhat unmaintained mode over the years. I think that happens in every open source community. And so I've had to pick up and run with some things. Other than that, I mean, deployment has been somewhat of a challenge. I mean, that's why I brought in Gerhard Lazu, who's the host of Shipit, to help me with deployment. And of course, we've toyed with different deployment styles over the years, not because we've had to, but because it's been interesting and fun. And, you know, we're content creators at the end of the day. So it helps us have something to talk about. But deploying was definitely an initial challenge. Once I had it done, I was like, how do I get this thing into the world? This was 2015. Um, so that was a challenge that slowed us down some. That's all I can think of. Yeah. Do you have sort of a sense of how it compares to maintaining and running other systems that you've done in the past? I would say it's just comparable to past systems with when it stays maintained. I think systems where I've had serious trouble is where you ignore it for eight months and then come back. And so it's like, hey, you know, you, your, your version of Ruby is outdated. These gems no longer exist or whatever the, the problems are, like getting it back up and going. I've never left the system alone long enough to know if that would also happen. I know that Elixir libraries update quite frequently. And so I'm constantly running uh, mixhex.outdated, I believe it is, and just seeing what's new and upgrading. And so I've really maintained this pretty fastidiously. And I find that when I do this, that with Rails apps as well, which is really my other major context for long-term projects, it wasn't a big deal. But when I let them go, they would fall apart quickly. I'm not sure if that happens with Elixir and Phoenix, but maybe it would. I don't know. What do you guys think? I do feel like the libraries churn a bit slower, mostly due to, I imagine, the community size. And like I would use 0.x libraries in Elixir that I would not necessarily consider using in like JavaScript land or other, other places because something can stay in 0.2 and be perfectly stable and feature complete right. uh, for a long time because 1.0 doesn't seem to mean the same thing in Elixir land. Yeah, I think the other thing is that you have to stay on top of the security, but when you're working with a functional language, all that stuff is much more isolated than it is with, within other frameworks. And I think that that's pretty important. Yeah, I think that's fair. So what does 1.0 mean in Elixir that it doesn't mean in JavaScript, for example? No, but I've definitely seen people say, oh, I won't be using that library yet. It's not 1.0. Um, when they're coming into elixir but to me like uh, that's just a number yeah. some people keep 1.0 to be mean now it's done and released and i've blessed it uh, and you should be able to use it in production right and some think like no it's just a number and 0.2 is perfect for production <laughs> because because i've done 50 releases already or right yeah. i feel like my risk my appetite for risk has always been really high because I've always been willing, even if I didn't know what I was doing, to dive into source code and to help patch things. And so for me, the numbers don't matter really at all, unless the readme says, this is pre-production, do not use this, like in all bold caps, uh, a 0.1 or a 0.2 is not gonna scare me away from a from a project. Cause I'm gonna check yeah, out the source code. It's always helpful when they tell you. <laughs> yeah, if they tell you specifically, don't use this yet, then sure, I will avoid, but at the end of the day, when I'm doing dependency analysis, I'm gonna read your source code, I'm gonna look at your test suite, I'm gonna see how long it's been around, what's missing, what's there, before I pull it in anyways. And if those things check out, the number on the on the tin 
doesn't really matter too much because some people are just afraid of 1.0 and it's like, dude, this thing is 10 years old and super rock solid and you're at point <laughs> two. you know, let's do this, pull the trigger. Right. And I mean, it's, it's so much easier in functional languages where you can isolate individual pieces. It seems like in this particular organization scheme, you're further along than you think you are versus the other way around, right? So the deal is with the functional language, you can be wrong and it isolates the impact of your bad decisions because we have things like, you know, dispatch in um, multiple dispatch in like a Lisp or a Julia. We have pattern matching and Elixir in languages like it where you have more dimensions for extension. And that means that each thing doesn't have to doesn't have to solve the whole world. Um, you don't have these mega integrated frameworks. All you need to do is be able to, to plug in one concern. And we have so many ways of wrapping that with, with straight, straight Elixir code. We can wrap it with behaviors, with protocols, and all of it just works out of the box. So how did it turn out that your code base is open source? Because I don't imagine other people are using it much. That's right. There are people who use it as a reference, which buyer beware, you know, you're, you're referencing my code. And uh, maybe if Bruce has some open source Phoenix apps, those would be the code you might want to look at. But open source is in our blood. It's in our roots. Our entire careers are built around it. Uh, the changelog was built around it. And so most everything we do, we try to be as open as possible. My plan for this project was to be open source from the beginning. We didn't open source it at the beginning because we weren't even sure if it was going to succeed. Like we could have just went back to WordPress or ditched it after six months and built something on Ruby on Rails. And so it wasn't open source from day one, but the plan was always there. Of course, at a certain point when it's been closed for a while, you're kind of like, do I want to go through all of the rigmarole, like licensing and writing a nice readme and cleaning up embarrassing spots or remo <laughs> removing hard-coded things in order to open source this. And so it did require a little bit of encouragement from the community. Jose and Chris were both encouraging us to open source it. There weren't really many open source Phoenix apps that people could even just look at and poke around with. I think maybe there aren't even today. I'm sure there's way, way more than there were back then. And so we wanted to provide that to the community. Like here's a real world production Pretty basic, but you know, running a production website that gets serious traffic out there in the wild for people to look at. And that was really the onus for it. Yeah, and I guess that's unfortunately about the time we have for today. I hope we'll be able to have Jared on back on sometime in the future. I'll just wrap up by saying thanks to Roxio, our sponsor, which is career fuel for programmers. And We'll talk to you next time on the next episode of Beam Radio. Thank cool. you so much for coming on. Sure, that was you awesome. Bet, guys. Hey, it was great meeting you guys. Happy great to be on the show. Well. Yeah. yeah, I'm a big fan. We'll talk soon. Bye. Take care. Yeah. You yeah. just need to build stuff. Get started. Go. <laughs> yeah. The rest comes when it comes. Good.